Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, from which you are able to make wise to make you wise for your for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Brother. Let's pray as we begin. So, Lord, we come um, to receive from you today, from your word. Um, I pray that it would both encourage and challenge us um, for the sake of ourselves, sure, but for the sake of our neighbor. And I pray that this would be rooted deeply. I pray that there would be a desire in each of us um, to know you more today, um, for your scriptures to come alive, that when we read them, um, we're reading them for life change. We want that. So we submit this time to you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So one of the things I shared about uh, last week in terms of personal renewal is the sort of apathy that we can get towards life and spiritual matters, um, lukewarm to the things that truly matter to us. And we live in a culture with a sort of paradox. We can be so easily captivated by the things that are trivial, right? Sucked into the algorithm, uh, doom scrolling. And I shared this. I want to begin here today. I shared this last week from Neil Postman. This is from Amusing Ourselves to Death, and he compares the dystopian futures of George Orwell and Aldous Huxley, uh, 1984, um, and Brave New World. He says, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we'd become a trivial culture. So banned books happening, no one wants to read, right? Deprive us of information and an overwhelming amount of information streaming at us at all times. Hidden truth or truth becoming irrelevant. And I love this, a captive culture, a trivial culture. I share this with you, not just because people come to church 1.8 times a month, um, but actually because I think it was sort of prophetic, this was written in 1985, um, to the ways we live in our modern culture, right? I remember asking a friend a few years ago um, how he spent his Saturday, and he said, bro, I watched YouTube for 11 hours yesterday. And I was like, bro, 11 hours. And I just like left there judging him. Um, Now... I can crush YouTube videos. I can absolutely, cr- I can't do 11 hours. I don't do that much like Facebook or, or, or Instagram or anything like that. But YouTube, it's like got me in its grips. I'll watch productivity videos while not being productive, right? 
Um, we, we did it this morning in our, our, our pre-huddle meeting. Is like we pulled up like our chosen social media and just like just share one embarrassing. It was like mine were like how to organize your desktop, what stocks to look at in 2020. I'm like, I don't want to say these things out loud. You know, you're sucked into the algorithm, right? And we're captive to it, right? And there's nothing wrong with social media or games or our phones for that matter, but we take things that are intended for good and we turn them inward, right? We, we take social media, which may be, in, you know, may be designed for you know, connection and relationship, and we turn them into sort of idols of the self. Uh, we take things that are designed to be restful and we leverage them to numb and distract. And before we know it, we're like opening up our phones and we didn't even know why, right? We're just picking it up and looking at it, right? We're kind of hiding behind them. You wait in line, you pick up your phone. Sometimes I go into, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go into a line somewhere, you know, for a coffee or whatever, and I'll be like, I'm not going to touch my phone, you know? And like, I'll forget I thought that, and then next thing I know, my phone is out, right? It's so easy in our time to neglect the things that are important, the things that give us like real depth and meaning and purpose, and then trade it for the trivial to numb and distract. Or Jesus actually just said it this way. He said, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And so today what I want to do is if I could sort of break through, you know, some of the, um, maybe sort of the, some of the skepticism or of cynicism that we have, I want to take this critique of us as a culture. I want to accept it personally. Like this struck me personally last week. And I want to be humble enough to take this assessment of us and apply it to our engagement with the scriptures, our ability to really read and be formed by the Bible. And so that um, we can aid in this renewal. So um, the title, I don't often do this, but the title of my sermon is Reading the Scriptures for Renewal, for real impact, for real change in our life, for real, real understanding. So I'm going to do some practical things um, as well today, because as a church, we believe in the scriptures for life and practice, that they can actually apply to our lives. And if, if you're here today and you're like, oh, I, just, I already feel the judgment, you know, I've gotten away from reading the Bible, or I've lost interest or passion, or, you know, I just don't think about that much at all, no judgment, how can this actually come alongside you and aid in your personal renewal? And so here's what Paul is saying to his mentee in 2 Timothy. But as for you, continue. Uh, the word continue is actually not there in the original language. In the original language, the word is abide uh, or dwell. So it's like, as for you, keep going in this. Abide in what you have learned and have become convinced of. And I love this, because you know those from whom you have learned it. And I love this little note here because um, what, what Paul is doing with, with Timothy is he's saying, the things that you've learned are backed up by a person with integrity right? It's backed up by a person. And we just know this to be true. Um, our best teachers were the ones we had a solid relationship with, right? We learned better when we knew we had a teacher that cared about us outside of the classroom. And so he says, um, because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You're gaining, garnering wisdom. It's not, reading the Bible is not going to save you, but he's saying it's actually making you wise and preparing you for salvation in Christ Jesus. And then this is just, wow. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Gives you a preparation for the good work. 
And so Paul is writing to this, this, these personal letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, um, Titus, and these letters are about um, the church community and how the church community is supposed to function. And this particular red letter was written because there was a, a rising heresy, a, a way of thinking that was not in line with the teachings of Jesus. And the particular heresy here um, is something maybe we'd call a speculative um, intellectualism, right? Religious, religion in this time was actually becoming a playground for intellectuals or pseudo-intellectuals, and it sort of worked like this. There was a craving for more skepticism, for more questions, harder and more provocative questions that could be discussed at length, or what you might call scholarly talk. But the problem was, is these discussions were never leading to any practice or life change. There was no intent on putting anything into practice, but it was just to impress each other with more ideas and more questions and more debate. And so Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's essentially saying this, you're actually reading wrong. You're not reading the scriptures in the right way. And so let's take that and ask these four questions here. What is the purpose of the Bible? Here's the four questions. First one is this, what is the Bible? When we pick up the Bible, like what, what are we reading? What, what, is it, what is it designed to actually do? And I love that verse 16 is saying, all scripture is God-breathed. And so in, in, in one sense, when you, when, you, when you hold the Bible in your hand, it's like God's words, right? It's like the very word of God. Now, um, 2 Timothy, uh, a good question to ask, which we'll talk about some practical things along the way here so we can learn, is it's probably a good question to ask, what is he talking about when he's talking about Scripture? When was this written? Are we talking about the Bible as a whole? How is it in the Bible, but it's talked about? It gets a little bit confusing, right? So this would have been written after the Gospels. Um, in uh, estimates, scholars estimate uh, that Second Timothy was written in 64, maybe 65 AD. And so um, we can almost assume, pretty, we can pretty much assume that what Paul is actually talking about, this is written post-Gospels, not all of them. Maybe John was written a little bit later. What, what uh, Paul is actually talking about is probably the Old Testament, right? All scripture being God-breathed. But as we sort of zoom out and take together the biblical canon and how we got it, we can, we can assume that this is the Bible as a whole. Um, the Christian Bible consists of 66 books. The Old Testament is 39 books. The New Testament is 27 books. And it spans genres. This is really important for understanding what we're reading, right? There's narrative. Uh, 43% of the Bible is narrative. Poetry. There's wisdom literature and prophecy. There are epistles, which are essentially um, like uh, circulating communal letters. They're letters written to groups of people. And then the Gospels, the Gospels sort of fit, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John fit under that narrative category, but it's a form of ancient biography. And so it's a very specific way, and it's gospel because the word gospel um, is a proclamation of something. So it's not just a narrative, but it's actually a proclamation of a narrative. And from cover to cover, the book is about God. And so if you have a physical Bible, if you have it today, you can do this, or if you, you go home and you take your physical Bible, you know, where it says this Bible belongs to, and you write your name, right? This book is about God. This book is about God. And if you want to be more specific, you can say this book is about Jesus. And the reason this is so important is, when you look at the Bible, one of my questions that I, I think about often is like, why why this book with a lot of pages, especially in a time when people are not reading as much? And I, I thought to myself, why not like a Wikipedia page? Like, I read that, you know, that seems a little easier. Maybe like a, a few more bullet points, change the outline a little bit. Why not like encyclopedic volumes about just God, the character and nature of God? And I kept thinking about this and I thought, if someone came to me and said, how would you describe um, your wife? 
I could use information, right? I could say my wife has blue eyes and blonde hair. She has two sisters. Uh, she grew up in Kansas. She went to NYU. She's a teacher. She's a mom. I can give you straight up information, right? Or, and probably what I'm more likely to do is start telling you stories, right? My wife has great memories growing up in a cul-de-sac with her neighbors and her cousins. I could tell you stories about how she would play violin from a young age and spend time with her grandmothers. I could tell you stories about her artistic abilities and how she loves to see the world through our kids' eyes. What, what's more inspiring? What, what does something in you, right? You can know Katie better through stories than through written information because you and I are storied creatures created by a storytelling God. That's, that's who we are, and that's why the Bible is a narrative. What is the Bible? The Bible is a story because a story is the best way to get to know somebody. And so 43% narrative, and then if, if you're scanning through your Bible, you say, wow, 33% of the Bible is poetry, much of which is what? It's an artistic reflection on the narrative, right? It's, it's taking the narrative and putting it into poetic form because we learn that way. It takes story and combines it with passion and art, and it comes alive. Here's how Eugene Peterson says it. He says, the Holy Scriptures are story-shaped. Reality is story-shaped. The world is story-shaped. Our lives are story-shaped. We enter the story, following the story-making, storytelling Jesus, and spend the rest of our lives exploring the amazing and exquisite details, the words and sentences that go into making of the story of our creation, salvation, and life of blessing. It is a story chocked full of invisible and intricate with connections. Imagination is required. And I just love that little tagline, like, imagination is required, right? Like, I'm so prone to looking at it and being like, who wrote it? When did they write it? Getting, like, all the little details. But it's like, no, 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 no. How do you engage this with your imagination? Now, normally what I would do if, I was, uh, if, I'm, if I'm preaching this is I would say, all right, so here's what I want to do. I want to take the next six. I'm mocking myself. Um, I want to take the next six and a half minutes, and I want to tell you the story of the Bible. Give me six and a half minutes from Genesis to Revelation. I'm going to tell you the story. Go. You know, set the timer or whatever. Now, normally that's what I would do, and that may be helpful at some point, um, but instead of zooming out, let me zoom into the story, right? I'm so prone to looking, and what you see in this story is it's inviting you into reality. What do you learn? You learn about listening to God, waiting for answered prayers, frustration with God on unanswered prayers, and in the end, learning to trust. When you read 1 Kings, you meet Elijah. He's burned out, depressed, and afraid for his life. He sits down under a tree, and he prays this. I've had enough, Lord, take my life from me. And in the story, an angel comes, very practically feeds him food. He makes it to a cave where God appears to him, not in a fire, not in an earthquake, but in a gentle whisper. What do you learn when you read that story? How God can meet you in the lows, in the, mount, in the valleys, or he can meet you in the mountaintops, both things at, at once. When you read the book of Daniel, you meet Daniel and his friends, young men attempting to be faithful in a culture that's absolutely godless. What do you learn? You learn how to love God when those around you aren't. You learn how to go to work on Monday morning when you're the only Christian in the office. And you learn to love those around you when it's hard. When you read the book of Acts, you meet the early church and you see a group of people um, sacrificing and living in community, giving away their possessions. And you see a movement of 12 people that gathered faithfully, reading the scriptures, praying together and eating together and it blew up to change the world. What do you learn? You learn history and how grass mo grassroots movements done faithfully can have a huge impact on the broader culture. What's the Bible? 
It's a story. It's a narrative drawing you in and changing you so that you can actually get to know the God that created you. So if the Bible's a story, what is the Bible about? What is the Bible about? And the cool thing about Jesus is Jesus tells us, and I love it, he tells us in the form of an argument with some other people. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees, they would be like the religious conservatives of the day, come to Jesus, they're questioning his divinity, and they're questioning his interpretation of scripture, and here's how Jesus responds back to them. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. They testify, or another translation says, bear witness about me. Jesus is saying, the collection of books that you're reading is about me, right? And I love Jesus because he's so argumentative sometimes. He, he, he comes to these people and he's, he essentially says, you have a crazy high view of the Bible and you've missed the plot line completely. You, you, you read these things diligently. You're trying to apply them. You add rule on top of rule on top of rule, but actually you missed it because they're actually pointing at me. And, and to me, I read this this week and I thought, wow, that's actually quite terrifying. You can know the Bible really well and not know the main character at all, right? You can, you can know these things. You can study them. You can have the facts. You can argue with people about them. But if you don't look at the person they're about, then it's actually not going to matter. You can study it and read it every day and get degrees on, in it and act nothing like Jesus. The scriptures, Jesus says, point to me. What does this inherently mean? It inherently means this. And let me, let me push a little bit here. It means it's not about you. And it means it's ultimately not about me, right? When we read the Bible, the, the, the most common thing, and, 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 and I think this is partly okay, is to come and to say, how can, I, how can I get some wisdom? How can I apply this to my life? I'm really struggling with something. Like, I need, I need some wisdom. I need some depth. I need help through this grief. I don't think those things are wrong. But when we come to the Bible and make ourselves the central character, we're going to ultimately miss it. And so, you know, if, if you would say it this way, like, what if the struggle or tension we often have with the Bible is ourselves? Like, what if you just came to the Bible and said, said that first? And so there are moments when you're reading, and it's going to strike you as totally strange. It's going to be like, well, that's impossible to fit my way of thinking and understanding. And so what do we generally do? We say, you know what? I'm just not going to read those parts, right? I'm going to take, like, the more encouraging parts. Those are my parts. The other parts, I don't know about those. But... Just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's not true, right? I like what Tim Keller says. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself, right? And so maybe you approach the Bible and you say, now I'll get practical here. And I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer this today. Um, you, you say, I don't, I don't like how the Bible is so restrictive when it comes to sex and sexuality, right? A lot of people look at the Bible and say what, what, what God and the Bible say about sex and, and sexuality is it's just sort of antiquated. Like, maybe it worked in the 50s. I don't, I don't know about now, right? And in one sense, I would invite you to pause for a second, right? Pause. Just because you can't see a reason that, that what God is saying or the Bible is saying um, is, isn't true doesn't mean it's not, right? Right? Why? Is it, is it because... Is it conflicting with my feelings? Is it con conflicting with my intuition? Does it kind of feel like I'm reading this book and it's judging me, right? The Bible is not written to flatter you. The Bible is meant to introduce you to its main character, right? I think there's really good ways of reading scripture. And, and, and if you want to come talk to me after I kind of stirred that up and left it there for you, um, good, good luck, you know. Um, 
But if we're looking at the Bible and we want wisdom and we want hope and, and we want direction, we can come to it with those questions. But first, major in the majors and then minor in the minors. The Bible's primarily written to introduce you to its main character, God. Major in that first. Lead with that first. And then if you want to get to the cultural hot-button issues of the day, go there after. But go there with the lens of relationship with this person, Jesus, and then the minors are going to make a lot more sense. Let's keep going. Number three, why does the Bible exist? Why does the Bible exist? All scripture is God-breathed. And then hear this, useful. Um, in, the, in the original language, the word is actually profitable. Like it adds value to your life, right? It's useful for what? For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then don't miss this. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right? So there is a very, very clear in verse 17 intention of growing in wisdom and understanding of the Bible. It's not for knowledge's sake. It's so that you can love your neighbor. Right? So maybe let, let me say it plainly and just really, really slow here. The Bible exists to reveal God to us. Like A number one, right? And then it says it can teach us, it can convict us, it can correct us, and it can train us. And I would say so that, in in this theme that we're using is, so that we can participate in the life of God, right? So that we can actually say, God is is actually doing a work of renewal. We want to join him in that. And so what the Bible actually does is it helps us participate in the life of God. And then this little tag here, for our neighbor. For our neighbor. So it's, it's, I'm taking, I'm ingesting an information. I'm hoping it seeps into my heart so that I can actually live that out. And so when we read it, at times, it's going to be comforting, right? It's going to be bringing us deep wisdom. And other times, we're going to say, ah, that's less congenial than I want it to be. It's challenging me. i got to go think about that. Um, here's how uh, Joel Green says that He's a professor at Fuller Seminary. He says, whereas the church and its related institutions tend to focus on moral acts, scripture is far more concerned, again, here's that phrase, shaping our imaginations, our patterns of thinking, which inevitably find expression and transform commitments and practices. Behavior serves as a display case for our deepest commitments. So it's turning this around a little bit, some of our motivation. The story is shaping our imagination. And the Bible honors our humanity so much so that it says, hey, you know what? You're not just a brain on a stick. You're not just a thinking thing. You're actually going to be formed from your head to your heart holistically. And it's not, and out of an overflow of that, it's going to change your conduct, right? And that's why we read it and we actually miss it because we read it and we see, I want the list of rules. I want the list of don'ts and don't, uh, do's and don'ts. The, the Bible could have been a legal document in that sense, right? Do this, don't do that. And there are some legal documents within the Bible. But story and imagination first and let that, Um, morph into actions and deeds of love. So to shape our imaginations, but the scriptures are also about formation before information, right? We're so prone to um, information gathering, filling up our heads. I blame like the school systems, right? Do you remember like elementary school, you're passing facts, you're regurgitating, um, you know, rote memorization tests. You're just getting this sort of information in a didactic way, I blame the worksheets, always a worksheet, like finish these three worksheets, bring them back tomorrow, right? We grew up on this, and so we learned to learn a specific way. But the Christian life, information without formation just really doesn't amount to much. And I love that Jesus is, I mean, um, Paul is so action-oriented, so that you may be equipped for every good work. Get it into your head. 
and then let it sink into your heart and change you so that you can actually go make an impact as you participate in the life of God. Last one. How do we read it? How do we read it? And what I want to do here is I want to give you a handful of suggestions. Um, I, these were much longer. I slimmed them down. Um, and then I really want to focus on one of them for us particularly today. So here's the four. Um, the first one is this. Read critically. Um, and what, when I say read critically, I mean this. Seek understanding. If you sit down and you read the Bible, ask more questions. We're not asking enough questions when we're reading the Bible. I'll never forget being in seminary, um, biblical interpretation class, and um, our, our professor said, we're not going to look at any scholars or commentaries for the next like seven weeks. That's only for the last three weeks of class. And I was like, well, what are we, how are we going to learn the Bible then? And he would print, yeah, he would print out um, the, the, the papers. He would ask us to print out the passages we would literally just read it together and ask questions together for weeks. I'm like, I'm not learning anything. And by week three, I'm like, this guy is blowing my mind in the, 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 the amount of questions he's asking. And so we're, we need to get more clarity. We need to be asking questions about when the book was written. What the, uh, I, there's a, a phrase in, in biblical interpretation. It's called aim. It's the author's intended meaning. What, who is writing it? Who are they writing to? And what was their intention in writing it, when was the book written? There's so much going on that we're largely unaware of, especially because we were not the author's first um, intended audience, all right? So read critically. Um, we'll post some resources this week um, on, on Instagram, too, because I, I, I want to skip through uh, getting these resources to you, and we'll, we'll post those later because there's so many great resources out there. Suggestion number two, read in community. Our rugged individualism blinds us right? This is why my favorite place to read scripture is in community group, because what you're doing is you're gathering so many different people's perspectives from different backgrounds and different walks of life, and it's the best place because essentially every time that I read scripture in community group, I end up saying, I never saw that. I never noticed that. I never saw it. Um, my, actually, my favorite people to read scripture with are people that are new to it. They're new to it because they're like, what does this mean? And you're like, I don't know, just move on, you know, like forget about it. Don't worry, don't worry about that part, you know? And they're like, they're asking all the best questions. The third one, read trustingly. Is there any faith when you're reading? Right? We're, not, we're not reading this the same that we're, you know, we're reading musing ourselves to death. Is there faith involved in the process? And faith in the Bible is the, the Greek word pistis, which just means to trust. It means I like, I'm, I'm leaning my life on this and I'm, I know that it can back me up. And like reading with faith, it, it, it begets more faith as you're reading it. And you're saying, God, would you actually show me who you are as I read this? Could I get more understanding of your nature and your character? So read trustingly. And then here's the fourth one. And I want to be a little, I want to expand on this a little bit here. Is we're reading from a social location. What do I mean by this? You're reading from a position that's preconceived, right? So when you're reading the Bible, there's, uh, there's what's called three worlds of the text. There's the world within the text. Right, so you're reading a, a passage of scripture. Uh, uh, John read Psalm one, and so the world of the text is just like what's written right there. You're like, all right, the tree is planted by streams of water; it's rooted, and you're just looking at that. What type of literature is it? You know, who who maybe was the intended audience? What's the flow? What's the vocabulary? That's the world of the text. Then there's the world behind the text. Right? This is where you're getting to some of the history, right? This is where the Bible gets quite confusing because it's not our historical moment, right? It's not 21st century. This is first century, maybe even previous um, than that. But who's writing it? 
Where were they writing it to? What, what, is the author, um, what did the author hope to accomplish um, in, to its first readers? And then we get to the third world of the text, which is the world in front of the text. Does this text have meaning and application for the here and in the now? And what we need to be mindful of is that gap, the historical gap in time. The, you know, it's 2024, and we're not the original audience, but there was an understanding and a way of understanding the Bible in the first century, and there's a gap. And so your social location influences your interpretation. The life you live, the, the house you grew up in, the schools that you went to change how you view the text. So let me give you an example of this. I thought this was so brilliant. Uh, there's a seminary professor uh, by the name of Mark Allen Powell. Um, he wrote a book, and it's called What Do They Hear? And he did this little experiment. He took 12 seminary students, and he had them read the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, here's what you do. I want you to pair up with one other person. And this was uh, the instructions. Pair off and read the episode together. And I, he gave them a time limit, whatever it was, five or seven minutes. He says, then I want you to close your Bibles, and I want you to repeat the details of the story to one another. And then I want you to go back to the scripture after and see what you left out, what you remembered, and what, what maybe you added on top that wasn't there. Of those 12, None of them remembered this in Luke chapter 15, the famine. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. These 12 American students, what did they see? They saw a young man squandering his father's wealth, going off to a distant country. None of them mentioned the word famine. Um, uh, Powell, the professor, he didn't notice it either, and it bothered him. So he organized a study with 100 students, and he took these uh, 100 students with diverse backgrounds, gender, race, age, economic status, and religious affiliation, and he did the exact same experiment with 100. Only six of the 100 American students uh, caught the word famine. And so he was like, I want to take this further. He was on a sabbatical in St. Petersburg, Russia. He found 50 Russian students to do the experiment with. He had them read the passage together, close the book, see what they remembered, and then come back and see what was omitted, added, or changed. 42 of the 50 Russian students named and remembered the famine. Here's why. One probably doesn't need to look too far for a social or psychological explanation for this data. In 1941, the German army laid siege to the city of St. Petersburg, then Leningrad, and subjected its inhabitants to what was in effect a 900-day famine. During that time, 670,000 people died of starvation and exposure, about one-fourth of the total population. Some of the current inhabitants of the city are survivors of that horror. More are descendants of survivors. Other res rep residents represented a new generation of immigrants, but even, though, even these had a collective memory remained strong in the cultural milieu. In modern St. Petersburg, typical social issues, abortion, care of the elderly, imprisonment of lawbreakers, and socialized medicine are often considered through the lens of an important question. But what if there is enough food? And no one thinks it is odd for university students to write papers on the ethics of cannibalism. It is, I think, not surprising that in this location, more than four-fifths of the people who read Luke's story of the prodigal son did not forget that there was a famine. To them, the mention of famine is never in extraneous detail. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. What are you bringing to the text? What preconceived notion? What ideas? What history? What history are we bringing why is it so uncongenial to us in these ways? But if you were to go to Africa, we'd say, that's the way it is, right? And so what are we bringing to the 
texts. Those are not necessarily bad things, but it's a wisdom to check ourselves and to come into a community group and to say, hey, actually, this is my idea towards this. This is my interpretation of this. What do you guys think of this? So we can actually hear what God is saying. So here's a recap. What is the Bible? The Bible is a story. What is the Bible about? The Bible is ultimately about Jesus. Why does the Bible exist? For formation and participation. And how do we read it? We read it from, a sele- uh, from an awareness of our social location. So I, I wanted to do this today. I wanted to take the time to talk about the Bible. One, I want to stir you on. I hope that you're reading. Um, if you need suggestions on what to read in the Bible, please come and talk to us. Come talk to our prayer team. There'd be really good wisdom and advice on, on um, how to take a step towards that. In addition to that, next week, we're going to start a series leading up to Easter. We're going to start Lent a little bit early um, in the book of Revelation. It's Jesus's critique of the early church. Um, what were they wrestling with? And um, really, it's an opportunity for us to do, um, and I'll explain all this next week in, in coming into Lent, um, but Jesus is really like wisdom that he has for the church, and we want to take that in uh, leading up to Easter. All right, so um, let's, we're going to take communion together, but let me pray um, for this and for our communion. Um, and if you want to, let's stand together, and if the communion servers want to come forward, um, we'll partake of this together today.